This is E Boogie, the artist formerly known as Eric. You're now listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, what is up, guys? This is AC, and I'm here with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. And joining me today for a special playoff weekend recap, I got with me my Lakers guy, Eric. Yo, 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 yo. And our resident Philly fan, Uswe. Howdy how. So we have a lot to talk about all of our teams. You know, I'm a Knicks fan and both of you guys, we, we all had interesting playoff series with varying outcomes for our respective teams. But before we get to those series, I just wanted to ask you guys generally, I mean, how nice is it to just have playoff basketball back again? Oh, it's amazing. The level of intensity of play, nearly every game going down to the wire where one bad call here or turnover or something like that could basically be the game in favor of one team over the other. So I think across the board, it's it's pretty tight games, and that's exactly what we want to see. We're tired of this boring, overpowered teams, you know? Well, we have that with the Nets, but at least the other seven series are pretty fun to watch. I mean, I, I said this to you all a couple of days ago. I'm not a person who really is particularly festive during the traditional holiday season. For me, the beginning of the NBA playoffs is, for all intents and purposes, my holiday. I get extremely happy. I cook for it as if I'm cooking a holiday meal. I celebrate. I get drunk. It's awesome. 100%. It really feels like Christmas morning for those of us who are basketball junkies. And Oswe, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to intensity. I think especially after a season in which we saw so much absences and, and people having rest days and injuries and COVID kind of wrecking teams and a compressed schedule. It just feels so refreshing to see teams now going all out. The other thing I'll say is, my God, is it nice to have fans back? Because I don't know if it's just a coincidence, but all of a sudden it seems like the vast majority of the teams around the NBA have at least doubled their fan capacity from what it was even a few weeks ago. And that difference, plus the stakes being higher, has made these arenas just completely alive. Even a place like Phoenix, which I don't think as traditionally a classic very loud arena they were rocking there and i think it actually seemed to make an impact on the game we want to knock on wood though because apparently only like a fourth of us are fully vaccinated so hopefully this isn't a harbinger of bad things to come yeah for sure we'll we'll knock on wood Uh, i'll sweet give me your head i'll knock on it three times and we'll be good to go (laughs) (laughs) that was mean (laughs) you mentioned phoenix Let's talk about that series. My biggest thing about the Lakers Sun series is that on paper, it just seems like the Lakers could have their way with the Suns. A lot of people are overreacting over how the first game went. I find myself not really worried. If anything, it kind of seems like the Lakers were just trying to get a feel for what the Suns have to bring to the table. So the Suns won the first game, but just give the Lakers a little bit of time to get their legs under them. 
it's just a trend. I, they were talking about it during the broadcasting. It's a trend how in a number of series, LeBron's team has lost game one, but they've ultimately won the series by the end of it. So it could be anything from just LeBron and Anthony Davis getting their legs under them again, the team trying to work on that chemistry, and also Frank Vogel trying to figure out his lineups and matchups. Whereas you look at a team like the Suns, they don't have that kind of luxury. You know, they're facing the defending champions. They're facing LeBron James. So they need to go 100%, 100% of the time. So I feel like the defensive mastermind that is Frank Vogel is going to come up with some really good matchups for game two and onwards. And you'll see that while Devin Booker had a great game, I feel like the Lakers defense is going to bother him a lot. On a similar note, Chris Paul, he looked a little banged up after that shoulder injury he got. So is he going to be able to play well when the Lakers defense turns it up a notch? I'm not so convinced about that well i mean you're a lakers guy it's interesting that us says you know vogel is a defensive mastermind he'll figure it out I-, I totally agree with that but what is up with him kind of punting these game ones with vanilla schemes and rotations that make no sense it's not even just that he's not using his best lineups he's just using some flat-out bad lineups that have been proven statistically not to work these odd lineups were you know davis at the four with another conventional center taking up all the space you want AD to be in, basically. And, and he's out there chasing around Jay Crowder while people like Drummond and Harrell are protecting the rim. I mean, it makes no sense. And then some of the scheme stuff they were doing were just bizarre. They were throwing weird soft doubles at Devin Booker on the wing, not something they ever normally do. Like, they weren't trapping. They were just sending a random man at him, and he was just picking it apart. And even the, the same action working over and over again, they were doing this kind of dribble handoff from Paul to Booker, and it was just a- absolutely killing them, and, and there was no adjustment made to that. So why Why do you think Vogel kind of does this? For the short answer, I have no damn clue why he does this. I don't understand (laughs) what logical like point he could possibly be making to always concede the first game in the early two rounds. It, It seems illogical and upping the level of difficulty arbitrarily for God knows what reason. I have no clue. Eric, it's not even the first two rounds. Even the last two rounds last year, they won game one against Denver. They won game one against Miami, but they weren't playing their best schemes or their best rotations in either you of those are games. Absolute, you are absolutely correct, AC. But and I think this is one it of It took the, a loss for them to do that, right? I mean, ab- that, that's it's ab- kind of bizarre. Absolutely. And I, I think this is one of the times where I think my brain just let the, the end results absolve what he did schematically even in the series that he won the first game because you are correct we like somehow saw a couple of JaVel McGee sightings last year right now we saw way too much Andre Drummond uh playing the five while Anthony Davis is playing the four even though we've seen in the games they played together during the season which admittedly wasn't a lot is still like a lineup that is not optimizing Anthony Davis's skill set. Instead of, for whatever reason, instead of playing Mark Gasol with Anthony Davis, which again, all of us agree, Anthony Davis's best position is the five. Instead of playing Mark Gasol, if you want to play a conventional center with him, a guy who spaces the floor and defensively works schematically with Anthony Davis and that lineup you forced him on Drummond and Montrez Harrell, 
two guys who neither of them particularly protects the rim, which admittedly Gasol doesn't as well, but Gasol's rate of forcing turnovers and bad percentage shots is definitely above Trez. And it like, as far as forcing turnovers, he mirrors Drummond at times in minutes played, but the field goal percentage guys shoot against him is just, there's, there's a gap between them. So I, I have no clue why he does it, but he does it. <laughs> well, the Drummond thing is fascinating to me and somewhat perplexing, to be honest, because I'm not really sure I understand why this guy who came on board towards the end of the season has been apparently just promised the starting role even though they have no actual ability to re-sign him unless he's willing to take a veteran's minimum. And in Marc Gasol, who you mentioned, on the other hand, is actually under contract even for next season at a really good rate, basically a minimum contract. So it doesn't make any sense to me why they're just persisting with Drummond. I think Drummond himself actually played decently well in Game 1 and has actually played decently well for the last few weeks. So the issue is not Drummond. It's, th- it's that Drummond limits Davis. He takes Davis away from doing what he does best, and Davis basically does everything Drummond does better than him. And instead of putting him in that role, you're having him camp out of the three-point line where he's having a really poor shooting season overall, shooting just 26% from three on the season, a huge drop-off from last year. And his mid-range jumper, which was pretty much automatic in the playoffs, has basically abandoned him the whole year. And unless that comes back, he's going to have to play minutes at the five, not to mention the snowball effect of having multiple big men on the court along with two slashers in LeBron and Schroeder Basically, they're taking lanes away from them. So I, I don't know what's going on there. You have the greatest lob man as far as finishing lobs in the league right now. One and of the greatest whatever, ever. One of the greatest ever, arguably. And for whatever reason, you have decided that for a huge stretch of these games, you're going to take away his ability to even do that, which makes no sense. And AC, I, I think it's a, a great point that you touched on. The dude has had a bad shooting season from 20 feet out. Why the hell are you forcing him to camp out at the three-point line? You're forcing him to take shots that he hasn't been hitting at an efficient clip at any point this year. Why not put him in his best places that he can actually succeed on the court? Eric, this all reminds me a little bit of Joel Embiid because in past postseasons, he's never been healthy or in good enough shape to be down low for long stretches of the game. And so he'd kind of play like a three-point line to three-point line type of game. The only reason I could come up with why Vogel is playing Anthony Davis like this is because he's trying to save him for later rounds because he thinks, all right, if we limit the amount of bumps and bruises that he gets by pounding the basketball down low, then we'll be able to have him deeper into the postseason. Now, obviously, you got to get to deeper in the postseason, and the only way you do that is by playing your best basketball, but it's clearly their belief that they don't need to go to that to beat this Phoenix Suns team. I feel like these guys are definitely good enough that you need to at least put Anthony Davis, I want to say like 20 minutes on a game at least at the five. To to your point, Oswe, last season, in the regular season, he played 40% of his minutes at the five. And then in the playoffs, that jumped to 60%. So the majority of his minutes he played in the playoffs last season for the championship winning Lakers were at the five. This season... He's played less than 10% of his minutes in the regular season at the five. And yes, he did go to the five briefly in a few short stints in game one. But 
it's almost as if you're using these minutes to make up for the other failing lineups. And that seems to me to be very foolish because it puts a ton of pressure on those lineups to produce. And what I actually saw happening is another side effect of this is that when AD is finally put at the five, he starts demanding the ball in the post. Whereas in my opinion, that's not even the best way to use AD. Though he has a good post game, it's as a pick and roll man. So what I would love to see in those minutes as much as possible is pick and rolls with him and Schroeder, pick and rolls with him and LeBron. But when he finally gets there, he's like, all right, I can finally post up now. And there's like three or four wasted possessions with him doing that. Well, let me add the LeBron James, Anthony Davis pick and roll last year was hands down the most destructive offensive play of any team in last year's playoff run. Like when they ran the pick and roll where LeBron was the facilitator for AD rolling to the rim, they were unstoppable. I, I agree, Eric, but only in the situation where LeBron was at the four and AD was at the five. Because when LeBron's at three and AD's at the four, like they are, unfortunately, for the vast majority of their minutes so far this season, teams just switch that. And they're like, well, we can get away with switching this because even if you beat our guy off the dribble, there's still another big man standing there. And we're not afraid yeah. of your big men as lob threats, you know? So To be, to be fair, you, you are absolutely correct. But yeah, the implication was when LeBron is at the four and AD is at the five, you are absolutely correct that they switch off of that. And it, as you already stated before, when they're at the three and four, with a traditional five being there, like that lane is already clogged up. So it hampers that action. But another thing to add that I, I thought was very curious is something Anthony Davis said about his performance post-game, which this actually does worry me. He said when he saw the score being 15 to 10, and they were up 15 to 10 with Drummond at the five, initially in the first quarter, he thought that he didn't have to be as aggressive at that point and could kind of chill. Interesting. And that seems to me to be an indicator that Anthony Davis, when he's at the five, understands that he's being looked at to be the engine that ignites the offense. So, I mean, I hope Frank Vogel is listening to this. It seems like he needs a little bit of fire under his ass, which I know is like a problem that a guy who we look at as a top five like playoff performer, that he even needs that. But it is what it is. I hope next game... Vogel acts accordingly like he did against the Trailblazers last year and the Houston Rockets in the second round and plays AD more at the five and earlier at the five. You know, what's interesting, Eric, is you're absolutely right to touch on his own lack of fire at times because I 100% agree that the Lakers could benefit him by putting him in positions where he is involved in the action, not standing at the three-point line on defense guarding Jay Crowder, but actually in the middle of the action. And same with offense. But it's interesting, if you think about him even just a week ago when he dropped 42 and completely annihilated this team, that was with Drummond on the floor too, but he knew that he had to be the number one option. And he had a couple of games in a row there playing even with Drummond where he was much more aggressive. And I, I totally agree with you that he's best off without Drummond. And, and if you have to play him with a five, you might as well play him with Gasol who can space the floor for him and make good post-entry feeds to him and things like that. But part of it's on AD as well to sort of pick it up. Now, we focus on Anthony Davis, and rightfully so. He got a lot of the ire from the media, former players, for his performance. He himself took the blame afterwards. And he has a track record, by the way, of showing up after he has a bad game. And he, he always 
blames himself and takes the responsibility for a game that doesn't go well and he often performs afterwards. So I'm expecting him to do that. But LeBron James, in my opinion, has not looked like himself in either the game against the Warriors or in this game today. I, I think in total, he's probably driven across both games, driven to the hoop hard, maybe only less than six times. And with varying degrees of success, he couldn't get by Andrew Wiggins. He wasn't posting up Mikhail Bridges, a guy who has a massive strength advantage over. There were times where he was switched on to Devin Booker and it looked like he just, either he wasn't interested in going by him or he couldn't go by him. And for the sake of the Lakers, I hope it's the former and not the latter, because if it's the latter, then this team is, is really, their ceiling as an overall team is dramatically reduced. I would say if he can't drive by those guys, they're dead in the water. Now... I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt going into the next game, game two. We saw some version of this last year coming into the bubble where they had the bubble regular season games preparing for the playoffs. In the first playoff game, he, for whatever reason, didn't seem as offensively aggressive and engaged. But I think the difference this year, he's coming off of an injury, an injury where he was out for the most games in his career. So I don't exactly know if this is just an older guy working himself up to speed like a horse, building up some type of lather, or a guy who's injured and old. So we'll see in the next couple of games. The other thing, Eric, was I thought that his defense was really a problem in that game. When I, I rewatched parts of that game and, and just kind of focus on what LeBron was doing on defense, he was very often the reason that those plays were breaking down. They weren't putting him in difficult positions. He was basically guarding spot-up shooters. But then he wouldn't tag roll men. He would just kind of look at them and point to someone else to do it. Or he would overhelp and leave a guy wide open. And then he had maybe only a few steps to do to close out. And LeBron, when he's engaged, one of the best closeout players in the whole league. He'll get a guy off the three-point line going the wrong way to their weekend. Here, he wasn't even making more than a few steps. Now, is that you know saving his energy, preserving himself, testing himself out? Or is it that he can't physically do it? If it's the latter, that's another huge problem because I think he's a huge part of their defense as well. At the same time, how many times have we heard about, oh, LeBron's being lazy on defense or this or that? But whenever it really comes down to it, he locks in and he just shuts people down. He did that in the finals against Jimmy Butler, didn't he? Or against Jamal Murray in the round before as well. Exactly. So look, this is just one game. This one game after months of being out. Same with Davis. These guys don't have that chemistry going because a lot of these guys on this year's Lakers team are new. Really, it just to me, it seems like the Lakers just wanted to see what the Suns were going to give them. Let's hold off on too much like incendiary commentary with relation to the Lakers defense and also their offense of course until we see game two because I think in game two is when we'll really see the Lakers that we all expect to be playing in these playoffs because once that team comes to play you know Lakers in five (laughs) I mean I'm not gonna talk too much on it but I will say that I'm not worried about their defense as much what I am worried about They have a season, a whole season of a not very great or particularly very good offense showing up. Early in the season when they were healthy, they showed little stretches of it, but it's never had any continuity. So I think we're going to get a great defensive team 
I don't know what this team's ceiling offensively can possibly be, but I don't think their ceiling, at least the season as a barometer, the ceiling is what it was for last year's playoff team. So that's definitely something to worry about. That's a really good point, Eric. This is a team that held a really talented Phoenix team to 99 points and still lost because they only scored 90 points in a playoff game. This is not 1994. You know, this is not the kind of consistent output that can get you wins. Big facts. And part of it's schematic. Part of it is this insistence on playing multiple non-shooters in an era of pace and space. Part of it is just the lack of continuity with a lot of these guys. You know, there's a lot of new faces on this team and and some of them like Drummond are playing huge roles. They haven't played more than five games with LeBron. I mean, think about it. Andre Drummond has not played more than five games with LeBron James together. Actually, in total, it's exactly six if you include the play-in game as well. So that's insane. And they're playing tons of minutes together and they're trying to work it out against another team. And Phoenix is good. You know, Phoenix is not the typical team that LeBron beats up on in round one. I do think the Lakers are more talented. I do think that the matchups alone, not to mention Chris Paul's injury that also mentioned, make it very difficult to imagine Phoenix beating these guys another three times. But this is not some easy first-round opponent that you can just rest against. You kind of have to beat these guys. You have to take it from them. And Devin Booker showed that he's no joke. I mean, he dealt with a very, very talented Lakers defense, albeit one that was playing a little bit half-assed. But still, they have good players on that team, and he was getting whatever he wanted. And so you had to beat these guys and steal at least one of these games in Phoenix. Okay, guys. So we spoke about the Suns and Lakers and some of the issues that we saw with the Lakers in game one. What did you all think about the Sixers uh, yesterday against the Wizards? I mean, I, I understand that we all expect ultimately the Sixers to win this series. But did we see anything that tell us that there are good tidings to come for the Sixers? Aswi, I know this is your team, and I was totally prepared to go off on a rant about how everything that the Sixers did wrong the last few years were happening again, because that's what the first half looked like to me. Nobody was doing anything at all besides Tobias Harris and Dwight Howard. And then the second half happened, and I saw stuff from Joel Embiid that I never thought I would see in a playoff series. This guy read double teams perfectly. He was patient with his offense. He made the right decision time and again. And the whole team sort of fed off of that. Seth Curry started getting rolling. Danny Green hit some threes. Defensively, they locked in. They completely exploited Russell Westbrook's ignoring of his team's game plan. And they just patiently beat them. They just looked like the flat-out more talented team in that second half. My last thought about takeaways from this game and really this season is Tobias Harris is for real now. And, and what seemed like even just last season as a total overpay is now looking more and more like a legitimate contract for a guy worth that much money. Before I respond to anything that you said, I need to ask you guys, do either of you have a spare coat? Because it's awfully cold up here in the number one seed. <laughs> here comes these funny, corny jokes. Yo, yo, real, talk, signature. <laughs> real talk, I've been waiting like two weeks to say that on this pod because we got the number no one seed after we recorded the last episode I was on. So finally, I got to say that. And now let me respond to what you said, AC. It's similar to what I said about game one with the Lakers. Like, it's just one game. So I'm going to reserve my excitement and then also some of the qualms that I had with what I saw. But let's break it down. Tobias Harris. Oh my God. Now, as AC, you know, I was extraordinarily skeptical about paying 
Tobias the money that we did. And when we hired Glenn, the one thing that all Sixers fans said was, well, if there's one guy who can get Tobias to play his best, it's Glenn. Well, guess what? Glenn Rivers, you did your job because Tobias Harris has taken his game to another level. And it goes deeper than just what you see in the box. One of the biggest problems with Tobias Harris throughout his career is that he was always very slow at making decisions, right? He would hesitate and wait, and then he'd make a bad shot or make a bad pass or something like that. But this year, and certainly in game one, he's been making decisions quicker. And he's just playing with a lot more decisiveness. And that shows in how efficiently he played. He had 37 points on 51 from the field, 40 from the three-point line, and he didn't miss at all from the charity strike. And he only had two turnovers. And because Embiid had foul trouble really early on, everything was on him. And with 25 first-half points, he straight-up carried the team. And that, honestly was a welcome surprise for me. But the question is, one, can we count on him to keep up this level of play? And two, can we count on Glenn to not sit him too long? Because what happened was in the second half, Glenn sat him out for a bit too long, in my opinion, and that resulted in him cooling off. I think that whatever I saw from Tobias is sustainable. He has a lot of tools in his arsenal, right? He's not going to be ever be an elite athlete that completely jumps right over the top, but he can drive and finish. He's got a good shooting game. And as you said, his decision-making has improved to the point that now I think you can reliably have the offense run through him in those stretches where Embiid is off the floor. And in this game, they were tested that way because Embiid got in foul trouble. And that is something to watch, by the way, because Embiid has been picking up a lot of cheap fouls, which is one of the things that's plagued him in the playoffs in the past. But Tobias showed that he could kind of step up during those stretches. So I thought, you know, there was some encouraging signs there. Yeah, I'm I'm just agreeing with you all. But same here. He was He was very, very good. And I'm a guy who thought they should have done everything in their power to keep Jimmy Butler at the expense of Tobias Harris. So he, he played like a stud uh, yesterday. So nothing but kudos to him. Give that man his flowers. You know, I'm glad you brought up Jimmy Butler because as a Sixers fan, when we let Butler go, essentially, but sign the big bucks to Tobias, it almost was like from that point onward, Tobias and Butler were linked. Sixers fans will always look at Jimmy and then look at Tobias and think, well, we could have had that guy. So I'm glad that for Tobias, because he is a great guy off the court. I think he's a fantastic guy. Finally, hopefully, he'll actually have made his deal worth it. Now, let me talk about Embiid. He had four fouls in the game, and for most of the game, he was in foul trouble. So that's why he didn't really have as good a game as he could have. He had 30 points on 56 from the field, zero from the three, but... 92% from the free throw line. He only had one block, six rebounds, and he had five turnovers. Like, this is the first round. I get it. This is a team that, barring some catastrophe, we should be beating. But he needs to play a bit cleaner. Five turnovers and four fouls is not going to cut it against better teams because we need Embiid having like 30-10 plus, right? Like if he could get 15 rebounds, great. We need him controlling the boards because when we face a Nets or or Bucks team, we literally cannot afford them to get second chance opportunities at all. Embiid needs to be available. He needs to be there to get those rebounds. And because we don't have a great offense overall, we can't afford five turnovers from our superstar. 
So that is the thing that I think, you know, this is a good starting point, but he definitely needs to improve because, yes, he got 30 points, but we need more on the defensive end with his blocks, and we need a lot more rebounds than what he gave us. You all the time, when you talk about Embiid or Ben Simmons, you make me realize why Philly fans threw snowballs at Santa Claus. Well, I don't know about throwing snowballs, but we certainly <laughs> booed him. him. <laughs> you booed him and threw snowballs. And, and how perpetually not truly happy you are with these performances shows me that you all can never truly be hoed. No, but- no, 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 no. All right, hold up, hold up. I must, I must defend myself and my fe- fellow Sixers fans. <laughs> Listen, we are very happy that Embiid has been playing the way he has been. And we're very happy that we won that first game. Don't, don't get it twisted. But the thing is, our goal is not to win one playoff game against a team that you could argue has no business being in the playoffs. Our goal is to beat a Nets or a Bucks team to get to the finals and potentially win a championship. But as is right now, if Embiid plays like this, or the team as a whole plays like this, even beating the Bucks will be a hard task for us to do. So we're critical because we're not, you know, like Knicks fans going crazy over the most minor thing, right? Like we we don't get hey, excited hey. over that. Cow, cow, like, cow, shots fired. Yeah, you know, like, we, we we look at the game as um <laughs> you know as unbiased and as uh, analytical as possible to give fair analysis, right? Like I'm not gonna like go crazy over this or that unless it's truly warranted, you know. I I recall an Oswego a few years ago who was so hyped about the littlest thing that every random young rookie they got had. I think he's become jaded over years of I, failure. It's, it's not jaded. It's called maturity. Uh, <laughs> it's called maturity. It's also experience. It's experience. It's also understanding that if you're doing a show like we're doing, if you're just some like biased sports commentator, no one wants to hear that. You know, that's fair. No, I, I agree I'm, with I'm, that. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it real. Like I like certain things I saw, but there are certain things that are big red flags. Five turnovers. Speaking of a big red flag, there may not be a bigger red flag out there in the playoffs than Russell Westbrook right now. I have no idea what this guy is doing. On, what on the night. hell was he? What the hell was he doing yesterday? I he honestly, th- there was a string of three possessions in a row, right? But this is this is what what he did. He took a terrible bank shot. No, Bradley Beal had it going, mind you, right? Bradley Beal was really impressive in this game because he was blowing by guys like Matisse Tybel, Ben Simmons, still getting shots off over contests. And for some reason, Russell Westbrook decided, oh, it's my time now to, to start scoring. So there's like a. a he decides to isolate and go on the wing and takes a terrible attempted bank shot. And then, you know, misses wildly and he gets a little bit upset. So the, the next thing, while the ball kind of being passed down court off the defensive rebound, he tries for a gamble steal, which completely misses, leads to a fast break the other way. They score. Comes back again, tries another bank shot. This one misses even worse. And then on defense, in subsequent position after that, he decides to just randomly double Embiid for no reason, like an angle you should never double from, and then his man just back cut him, and Embiid made the simple pass for a layup. So he just cost his team in that little sequence. 
on both ends in in basically four straight possessions. And that's the thing with Westbrook, right? Like for all the highlight plays he gives, and he does, even in this game, he has a couple of those plays where he just blows by everyone and finishes at the rim. He just makes such poor decisions on a consistent basis. Yeah, that's something I definitely noticed toward the end of the game when it was starting to get a little too close for comfort. Lo and behold, there was Russell Westbrook there to save the day for us, making bad decisions. (laughs) He had a frustration foul on Tobias Harris, which... Honestly, I don't understand why he did it, that but he did it. That was so stupid. That was, was so dumb. Such a, such a bad play. Yeah, and then... For no reason. <laughs> and and although, then he started cussing at the roughs for no reason. It's like, dude, you can't have <laughs> <Yep>. the foul. <laughs> although I will say that that out-of-bounds play called on him really wasn't because I did not see the heel coming down on the line. But, you know, I'll take it. Anything to make him more pissed off and play increasingly terrible is good for me. Well, that's the thing, Oswiz. When things are going against his team, his instinct is always to do more of the stuff that he does, right? So I'm going to have to run harder. I'm going to have to gamble more and make a crazier play happen. And in playoff basketball, it's often not making a crazier play. It's making the simple play, the right play. And I think that's one of the reasons he struggles so much in playoff series year after year. I mean, we didn't have a pot after the playing games, but in that first game that they played, he was atrocious in that game. He was making so many mistakes on both ends. And then he kind of had a bit of a bounce back game in the eight versus nine and led them to the playoffs only to then have once again, a classic Westbrook game here in game one. So they're going to need Westbrook to do two things. One, he's going to have to play a lot better. But two, he's going to get out of the way of Bradley Beal and let him do his thing. Because Bradley Beal, that man could score in so many ways that any possession that is Russell Westbrook pounding the ball away while Bradley Beal just stands there is a total waste. But see, that's the thing about Russ. It's like Simmons said at some point about like table setter guys. Like you want a guy who puts more condiments and silverware on the table than he takes off the table. Russ puts as much silverware on the table as he takes off. So you will have the playing game that he had two days before where Russ was like electric. And then you had Sunday's game where at times he was doing inexplicable things that it's like, what the hell are you doing? So when you have Russ on your team, it's like a give and take. Like ultimately you want him to be deferring at least during the end of games to Bradley Bill, who was on Sunday, but Russ is Russ. It's part of the reason Kevin left him. So you mentioned Russell Westbrook as a guy who needs to kind of get out of the way of a greater star. So that kind of reminds me of one Ben Simmons, because on Sunday, that's a really good point. Ben Simmons had six points, 15 rebounds and 15 assists. And if there's any silver lining, it should be that since the 1967-68 playoffs, only LeBron, Jason Kidd, Fat Lever and Magic Johnson have had 15 rebounds and 15 assists in a playoff game. So, Oswe, question. We know he had 15 rebounds and 15 assists, just like LeBron James you named. Did LeBron have six points as well in his 15 rebounds, 15 assists game? See, I just want to say something positive, right? I, I can't just rail on the guy. There has to be some silver lining to what he did on Sunday, right? So, you know, give him well, that much. No, I, I think... He is a perfect counterexample also to Russell Westbrook, right? I mean, we can focus on things that Ben Simmons doesn't do, how he doesn't provide space and all those other things. But here's a guy who, unlike Westbrook, he plays elite defense. He competes 
and finds other ways to win. And he doesn't get in the way of his other stars in the sense that he's not going to take possessions away from them. So right? His problem is that he also doesn't finish possessions where the help goes off of him to other players. But that's a different agreed. story. And that, that, By the way, Westbrook also shares that same problem because even though he's not a Ben Simmons bad level shooter, he basically is, if you consider his all-time plays as a as a playoff shooter, there's almost nobody worse than him. So, you know, if, if from, the, from the perspective of a defense, it's as if he can't shoot. They're going to leave him open right. as the Lakers did exactly. just last year. Now, Ben Simmons was 33% from the field, 0 of 1 from the three-point. Believe it or not, he shot a three. Wow. Yeah, and, and that was a, a that was an attempted buzzer. Yeah, he was, yeah. He, he, he was forced into that one. But even yeah. still, even still. Praise oh, me. And then he was 0 of 6 from the free throw line. So, look, if he continues playing offense like this, we have no chance against high-octane offenses. As our friend Drew, who some of you may recognize from our Knicks podcast, said in our group chat, he said that opposing teams should just hack Simmons since basically that's a dead possession. It's a lot better than getting the ball in the hands of Danny or Tobias or Curry or especially Embiid. But despite that, his box plus minus was plus 18. So why is that? Well, Bradley Beal had 33 points, but only shot one of six when guarded by Simmons and shot 70% when guarded by anyone else. So it's clear Glenn needs to lock Ben on Beal because we just need to force someone else to try to beat us. If Ben is on Beal all game long, Beal may not have 33 points. And then who's going to score for them? The other thing is, when Embiid's off the floor, you know, maybe you can hold off putting Dwight in for a little bit and just run Ben at the five because then you can kind of do a, a pseudo Jokic style where you're kind of playing through your center, but it also doesn't hurt the overall spacing. Just get a lot of good shooters around or as good as our bench shooting can be around Ben, let him do his thing, push the pace, and then attack the rim because we need him to score more than six points. But there's only so much that he can do when Embiid's on the court. And 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 the other thing is there's sometimes when Ben is forced to play with Matisse or even Dwight, which is just bonehead logic by Glenn. Yeah, I, I did not understand the Matisse, Dwight, and Simmons lineups all together. It doesn't make sense from a spacing perspective. I like your idea also of putting up the five a little bit in those bench lineups, just to kind of use them a little bit like how the Bucks use Giannis even. So if not as in the high post like they do with Jokic, Jokic is a little bit different because he can actually shoot. But you can put him in pick and rolls where he's the, the five, or at least there's four shooters on him at all times, and then he becomes... Like Giannis is going to pick you apart with his passing. And if you don't cover him, he can still drive and at least finish. So that's the way I would use him. Speaking of teams that aren't optimizing their spacing, I think the same thing applies to the Wizards who are rolling out these lineups sometimes with guys like Hachimura who can hit threes, but they're kind of more mid-range players. I think Davis Bertans needs to play a lot more. They need to create some space for Bradley Beal to be able to drive. Because one of the reasons that, because I, I saw him just get right around Tybal and Simmons several times, but then he gets met by a bunch of other people. And sometimes he's still finished. But just like we're talking about with the Lakers, you know, you can just can't win in 2021 offensively if you're going to have multiple non shooters on the floor at once. You can maybe get away with having one guy like that. And preferably it's a big man who can kind of catch lobs, but definitely no more than that. And I think the Wizards also could could benefit from that, although Scott Brooks is not exactly what I call an offensively innovative coach. So at various times during our podcast this season, guys, I've heard every one of us at this point advocate Doc using Ben Simmons 
and some type of role reminiscent of how Giannis is used as a big man five facilitating. And very rarely has Doc actually done that. The only time I could think where he did it for any consistent amount of time is when Joel Embiid was out. So as long as Joel Embiid is playing, I doubt Doc's going to do it. But to your point, Eric, Simmons was killing it in that stretch for a bit when, when Joel Embiid was out. He was having an amazing run where it was almost like, oh, wow, I guess Ben Simmons can score. And then that kind of died out after a bit. But yeah, they were, he was really taking advantage of the fact that it was kind of going through him. He had a little bit of shooters around him. The actions were created for him. It's kind of a little bit like we talked about with Anthony Davis as well, where if a guy doesn't feel like it's his job, position or role in the offensive sequence to be the primary option they may just float a little bit more and for a guy like Simmons he can probably do more on the ball if given the opportunity to yeah but then that just doesn't seem like Glenn's way of coaching right he in the past has very much been someone who was set in his way and if he did make adjustments it'd be a little too late so let's talk about Glenn right and with Glenn let's also talk about the bench real quick so I mentioned before he kept Tobias out way too long but there were stretches in the game where Simmons Embiid and Harris were all out. Look, we need to stagger their minutes. Otherwise, our bench will lose us games. Oh, that's the most classic Doc technique ever. Yeah. I mean, you saw that last season where he would bring this bench platoon of Lou Williams and Harold, both six men of the year, but in playoff series, not the guys you want out there when you have the likes of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and, and neither of them on the floor. Sitting at the same time for whatever yeah. reason. Yep. This is basic playoff basketball, right? Stagger your stars. Come on. Yep. So you guys want to know how the bench did? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bench didn't look great. All right. They only had 26 points. George Hill had an efficient 11 points. But then you have Matisse Thibel, who, while he had two blocks and two steals, he dropped an egg and had no points. Whereas our sixth man, the guy who's supposed to be our spark plug off the bench, Shake Milton, was only one of three from the field. The only quality bench minutes that we got, other than George Hill, was from Dwight Howard. But it's not like he's going to be scoring left and right, especially not in today's NBA. So it's so obvious that if you can't trust your bench to produce and score, that you need to have at least one of your stars. And especially for a guy like Ben Simmons, who doesn't naturally fit with Embiid or Harris, Simmons is exactly the guy who should be running the second unit with a Shake Milton and a George Hill or even Tyrese Maxey, some of these guys who can shoot, though obviously not reliably so, but it's still better than having all of these guys without Ben. Yeah, I totally agree, Oswe. And that's something worth watching because eventually you're not going to be facing Scott Brooks and Russell Westbrook. You're going to be facing potentially teams that have loaded talent and also coaching staffs that won't make that mistake. And if it's the Nets, for instance, there's always going to be one of those three guys in the court, if not two of those three guys at all times. So if you're going to be facing James Harden, Kyrie Irving with lineups of Matisse Thibel and Shake Milton as the primary creator, you guys are in for a world of hurt. Amen. Speaking of a world of hurt, I'm not going to lie, guys. I'm hurting right now. I waited 
it seems like forever for a real playoff game in the garden. Not this garbage 2014 series bet against Miami where we had absolutely no chance, but an actual playoff series where we had a team that we like so they could get behind and against an opponent that we could theoretically beat. Even though I thought that, and I, you could listen to our Knicks spot about this. I thought the Hawks would be a tough matchup for us. I think overall they're more talented. And it kind of went almost exactly according to classic Knicks script. The garden was rocking. Spike Lee was involved. And then this guy who was shooting lights out, kicks our ass, flops a little bit too much, just like Reggie Miller in the old days, talks trash to Spike Lee, just like Reggie used to do, and then hits the freaking game winner in our house. It kind of stung. Shout out to Trey Young. He's represented for all those with willowy hair. <laughs> <laughs> is there really that many people with willow hair i mean old people and babies <laughs> oh man he's, he's got the over 90 and the under nine months demographics covered <laughs> man yo ac i've got to ask what the hell was with that final play the hot hand, in my opinion, in that game, at least towards the end, was Derrick Rose. Why wouldn't you draw it up for him? Well, I, I think I'm just not going to read too much into a 0.9 second shot. You know what I mean? Like, what's the chance that's going to go in almost no matter what? So, and I, I think Randall has done enough this season to earn those shots as the primary option. He's carried this team on his back and made plenty of clutch shots. Plenty of game-winning shots for us this season. Though I do agree with you that he was utterly terrible yesterday. And what my, my hope is that that was just an off game. I do think that the level of attention in the playoffs is different. They kind of built a bit of a wall against him, even though he definitely has a jump shot to punish that, but his jump shot just wasn't falling. So overall, it was a bit troubling. I'm a little bit curious as to how we're going to guard Trey Young going forward because, you know, obviously Tibbs is about as good as it gets on that end, but we do need to sort of figure out some way to limit him because he's not an easy guy to cover because he he's actually a really good passer, so you can't just, like, run double teams blindly at him. But he is on the smaller side, so unlike someone like Luka, I think you can actually trap him a bit. I hope we do that a little bit more aggressively and consistently going forward. That's kind of the biggest adjustment I would like to make from a tactical perspective. From a rotation perspective, though, it's about time we stop playing Alfred Payton. I mean, I, it's infuriating to me that the third best point guard on the team starts every game and we just have to have these minutes where he's out there. This is a Knicks team that, against a good playoff opponent, is going to need shooting to punish the way they swarm Randall like they did today. And we just can't roll out Alfred Payton for his token 12 minutes of nothing every single game. And come on, Thibs, get it done. I think the most concerning thing for me when I watched the Knicks game was Alec Burks overachieved in that game. And the Knicks are in trouble if they are banking on Alec Burks to consistently drop 27 like he did. Yeah, it's a really good point, Oswee. I think our lack of guard play, is, especially guard creation, is pretty alarming. I mean, there's, there's, it's no secret that it's really when Derrick Rose came on board that we even became a relevant team. We just didn't have creation. And so that is a huge weakness. Like we basically rely on our wing in Barrett and our big Julius Randle to do basically all the creation for our team. So then there's Julius Randle, who I think looked a little scared and certainly rushed a little bit, but I, I think he'll bounce back in game two. This is the first time that he's been in a playoff series where the other team is actively scheming against him. 
Despite that, I don't think it'll be too much of an issue for him. I think the person who really needs to step up in game two is RJ Barrett. While he did have 14 points, he was also 16% from beyond the arc. And I get that shooting the three ball isn't exactly what he's known for. He still needs to step up overall to become your legitimate second option on offense because... Can you reliably have Derrick Rose, who is how old now, with how many injuries, being your second option in the playoffs? I don't know. Yeah, I think in many ways, he's the bellwether of our team, right? Because when he went from having a good sophomore season to having an outstanding sophomore season, that's when we went from a 500 team to a team that made this run to get this four seed, which I think in all of our wildest expectations of the Knicks, that seemed inconceivable. Right. So, you know, he did have 11 rebounds in the game. So he found other ways to contribute. But I think he has to be that consistent offensive threat. He's also a really good passer and he only had one assist. I think he could do more on that end. I think it's pretty simple when you look at these two teams. You have a Knicks team that's clearly the better defensive team. They're the tougher team. They kind of play with a level of togetherness that comes in part because they had very few COVID absences and very few injuries this season. Atlanta is kind of the polar opposite. They have way more talent overall. They aren't nearly as good defensively, although they're better than you might think. And But they're certainly a much better offensive team than the Knicks are. Their problem is just a lack of cohesion and time together, in part because they've had this weird season with coach firing and injuries and COVID absences. So it is really a contrast of styles. I still think that the Hawks should be slightly favored in this series, but the Knicks still have absolutely more than a puncher's chance of winning this series. And that's what I'm hoping is going to happen. So I guess the takeaway is the Knicks are going to Knicks. They're going to be close in these games. And then somehow, some way, they're going to lose and it's going to be heartbreaking. Got it. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be Knicks basketball any other way, right? I mean, at least it's the early 1970s. That's basically Knicks basketball. It's rooting for these overachieving, physically dominant, but not that skilled teams that just grind it out and then get their hearts broken by much more talented individual players or extremely lucky Reggie Millers. <laughs> yeah, Trey, Trey Young, um, him of wispy hair, he played that Reggie Miller role perfectly. Like, I, I guess I didn't even notice while watching the game that he had like 30 points, but then he hits the big shot and he shushes the crowd and, and he says... And he was drawing with Spike Lee all night yeah, long too. Loved it, it loved really, it, loved it. It was real nostalgia. And that, by the way, there was a lot of great crowds over the weekend. I mean, there really were. And I said, like, I mentioned Phoenix, but I didn't even expect it to be that loud. But it was awesome. And I know I'm biased here. And I know Nick's... Uh-oh. Yeah. Nick's, Nick's, Nick's going to make some, some anti-New York comment here. But the best crowd on the weekend, without any question, was the Knicks crowd. I mean, the, the chance they had. I mean, it was just awesome. Of, it was of really course awesome. They, of course they were, AC. Of course they were the best fans. <laughs> objectively the speaking. Objectively. Of course it's objective. It's not subjective at, at all. It has nothing to do with you being from the tri-state area and being a lifelong <laughs> Knicks fan. No, it's not that objectively you all were the best fans. You all win the best boy award for the weekend. <laughs> uh, I, I knew that would rile you up a little bit. Hey, it's, it's not my fault that DC can't get behind anybody. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, th that's true, but it's a low blow. <laughs> you know... AC, all these people that aren't from this area, this New York area that we are from, they just don't get it, right? I'm a Sixers fan, but 
I also felt that nostalgia hearing that crowd. Playoff basketball is meant to be played at the Garden. Now, for God's sakes, the Knicks need to field a better team so it'll go all the way to the finals because finals basketball would be amazing at the Garden. At two, Oswe, at two. Hey, man, I grew up in Jersey. My brother and my dad are diehard Knicks fans. Like, my earliest <laughs> memories of basketball are watching Knicks games with them. So, what can I say? Basically watching us get our hearts broken over and over again. Yep. <laughs> and be and wallow in our own misery for the last 20 years. Yep. I get it. It's Stockholm Syndrome. Her. <laughs> pretty oh, much. Yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Let's be real. <laughs> Speaking of a franchise that has unquestionable Stockholm Syndrome... Guys, we are three games away from the Clippers potentially once again flaming out in spectacular fashion. And now we're basically the seventh game of a sample in which they have no answer whatsoever to Luka Doncic. Last year, they famously tried switching against him and he killed them. In game one, they tried trapping this guy. Actually, I wouldn't even call it a trap. It was a pathetically weak trap. It was much more of a soft double, kind of a little bit what the Lakers were kind of doing to Devin Booker. But you can't trap or double team Luka Doncic. He's too good of a passer. He passes right over the defense. This guy was making passes on a rope. And I'm just curious, do you guys think the Clippers are actually in real danger or do you think they're going to get out of the series? I absolutely think they're in real danger. Look... At this point, Luka is going to be Luka against them. I, I think we have enough of a sample size that this team, the Clippers, they can't guard them. I, I don't know why they can't guard them necessarily because, in theory, they have two really good perimeter defenders to throw at them and Kawhi and Paul George, but they fell miserably against him. If Kristaps Porzingis plays anywhere around his regular season 20 points per game, if it's even a slight uptick, the Mavs in five. Whoa. Can we get a hot take there? Else we can get hot, a hot take alert. Hot take. Hot take alert. <laughs> wow. So you're calling it now. You're saying it's going to be Mavs in five officially. If he plays to his average. Uh, I don't want any ifs. I don't want any ifs. No, 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 I don't no, want any ifs. No, no, no. I, I don't I want any ifs. The, the Mavs are going to win this series. You got to guess there. They're going to win okay. this series. If he That's plays, hot take enough. If, if he plays like Chris Stapps. Mavs in five. If he doesn't, it's going to go six or seven. Wow. So I, I still fully expect the Clippers to win, but then I expected that to happen for three straight games in round two last year against Denver, and they did not come through. And in fact, they blew 15-point second-half leads in all those games. So I don't, maybe I'm foolish for believing in this team. I thought schematically there were some really interesting things that were happening. They put Kawhi Leonard not on... Luka Doncic, but I'm Porzingis. And in theory, that makes some sense because they could, you know, switch that pick and roll. But all Luka did was he just picked out whoever the worst defender was. He would just go at them. So often it was Zubox, who's actually a solid defender, but he just can't guard Luka. Or he'd pick, you know, one of the little guards. If And if it was Beverly on him, he would just post him and just as, you know, my guy, Fisher, he'd post him and roast him. You know, that, you know, that's a Clyde phrase. Then that's what he was doing. He was putting his ass under the basket, basically, by just out-muscling him. And then if it's anybody else, he would just pull up and take that shot. And he was just reading that double team so brilliantly. It really reminded me of really only one player that I've ever seen do that at a playoff level, and that's LeBron. Just the way that he kind of saw ahead of the defense from whatever the angle the help was coming from. Sometimes he would see the double coming. He would just shoot before the double even arrived. Sometimes he would just make that skip pass over from like the right side of the court to the left side corner three that really I've only seen him and LeBron make consistently against elite defenders. So 
I'm not sure what they're going to do besides maybe just trying to put Kawhi on him full time, which apparently Ty Lue sort of hinted is what's going to happen. He said, you're all going to see what you've been asking for in game two when people were asking why Kawhi didn't guard him. So maybe that happens. I don't know if it'll actually stop him because I remember last year he was yeah. keeping him alive. Yeah, but, you know, I, I would assume it's better. I mean, do you guys even agree with the strategy of trying to double him? Or do you just say, hey, just if you're going to beat us, like you score 50, drop 50 on us. Like we don't think, you know, I, w- I would go with that personally. I don't know about you guys. I, I mean, that's what I would do. Like, look, if you're going to drop 40 on us with a double team and somehow still be able to get people involved, then I'm just going to play you one on one and try to shut everyone else out. That's a good point. He still dropped 30 on them, even with the double team. It just seems like a waste of effort to double Luca when it's not actually working. Instead, they should try to make it so that, you know, Eric's long lost brother, Jalen Brunson, can. <laughs> Eric, you, Eric, you do look like Jalen Brunson. I honestly didn't know it until Oswe pointed that shit out a couple of weeks ago. And now I'm like, yo, he's like my evil doppelganger. <laughs> is he evil if he's going to help defeat the clippers is that evil for you okay he's probably he's probably he's probably the good guy yeah so my point is clearly the double is not working right so let him get his and then force eric's doppelganger to drop 20 or something on them because I, I just feel like outside of luca the mavericks are not that great when you compare them to like the clippers team and their bench how are the Mavericks even doing what they're doing in game one against a team that has so much talent like the Clippers? It just doesn't make sense to me. It makes some sense to me, though, because playoff rotations, of course, they're they're shortened. So, yes, the Clippers have a much better bench, but guys like Luka are playing more minutes. So you're getting more of the Luka experience and no one can guard them. So... The, the margin between the teams, it lowers, even though on paper, of course, the Clippers are still the better team. Yeah, but like you said, the rotations are shorter in the playoffs, but the guys who are coming in for the Mavericks are certainly less talented than the guys that are coming in for the Clippers. Facts. Well, I think Eric is onto something, though. It's almost as if the Clippers have too much depth at certain positions. So I look at the one, for instance, right? They have this glut of point guards between Beverly, Rondo, and Reggie Jackson. And Tyloo has kind of split the difference and gave all of them essentially equal minutes. At least in game one, you know, Beverly kind of got torched a little bit by Luka Doncic. Reggie Jackson was up to his usual playoff failings. And Rondo played really well and I think should probably have had a lot more minutes, all things considered, though I don't know how much more minutes he can actually play. But they have almost too much talent in some of these positions where they have hard choices. And I know that, you know, it's, it's almost a good problem to have, but I'm not entirely sure that Tyloo is making the right decisions. We can talk about the center spot. Who between Ibaka, who only played 11 minutes, I believe, in that game? Maybe 13, either 11, somewhere between 11 and 13 minutes in that game, so not much at all. Zubak, who clearly is the anchor of their defense, or what seems like Ty Lue is going for more of the Morris lineup. And one thing about Ty Lue, Eric, and I know you know this, having watched LeBron's career before and following Ty Lue pretty closely, Ty Lue always defaults to offense. In, in many ways, he's the reverse Frank Vogel. Frank Vogel will try to solve every problem first with defense, and he's going to find a way to do that. Ty Lue tries to solve with offense, so he's going to put out Morris at the five to try to beat the Mavericks, even though Morris absolutely has no chance of guarding Luka whatsoever. 
and definitely provides no rim protection. So I, I almost feel like their extra depth is not really being useful here because you only play but so many people and it's almost like he's making the wrong choices. I saw a few times where, and it wasn't many times, but a few times yesterday or the day before and a few times last year's series where Morris was gotten on a switch with Luca, and it's just so bad that he has no way to guard him. Like, and Luca isn't even someone you think of as being fleet-footed, but he'll still just easily drive around him. It's it's just horrible, man. Like, I, I don't, like, looking at this team, I honestly, with a coach like Ty Lue, and AC, I think you made a, a great point how his instinct is to go with solving problems with using like offense. I don't see Ty Lue making defensive adjustments that are actually going to stop uh, Luca and by way of Luca, the Mavs. So I don't know. Yeah. And I thought that there was another somewhat alarming sign from Marcus Morris in particular. If you guys remember in game six and game seven of last year's playoffs, Marcus Morris did not want any part of the ball. He was kind of playing a little bit of hot potato. That happened at moments yesterday. It also happened in the first half with Paul George right on the bat. Now, Paul George got it going later on. But those are some signs about guys who maybe, you know, if the going gets a bit tough here. Now, listen, they lose game two and they had to go to Dallas. And we all know that there ain't going to be any COVID restrictions in Dallas. So <laughs> expect like a ton of fans probably wearing no mask, screaming at the top of their lungs. So that's going to be a lot of pressure on the Clippers. Even if they get a split here, I think this this is going to be... I actually don't think any team in the NBA right now has more overall pressure on them than the Clippers. Because the Lakers have already won. The Nets, it's year one. The Clippers, I mean, Kawhi could walk in the offseason if this doesn't go right. If I were him and it doesn't go right, I would walk in the offseason. I'm not putting my legacy, hitching it in its totality to Paul George for the rest of my career when Paul George has never shown me that he's the guy that you want as your consigliere when the going gets tough. You're saying he's not Tom Hagen. Perfect. Exactly. (laughs) That's great. That was a great reference. And if I may, I do have a pitch for Kawhi. Look, man, things aren't really working out for you in the Clippers. You know, that, that young cat, Luka Doncic, he might knock you guys out. And then what? You want to stay with Paul George? Pandemic P? You're from sunny San Diego. Well, let me tell you, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> and we have, we, we're, we're uh, clearing cap space. So if you, if you want to come over, <laughs> by all means. I'm I'm imagining Kawhi Leonard at Patty's Pub with the yeah, guys that's with that's the that's with, with Mac and, and <laughs> Dennis and all that. Yes. Yeah. I was just I, I immediately thought thought about the Dennis system. <laughs> yeah, the, Dennis system. <laughs> the Kawhi system. So, uh, so yeah, look, man, if you if you're trying to walk, you know we got we got room for you. Well, I don't know if there's any better place to end than the concept of Kawhi Leonard in a dog crate after a game of Charlie McDennis gone wrong in Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) So, I think we should end there. Guys, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this. We'll have plenty more playoff coverage for you. If you have any questions or any other ideas you want to pitch to us and you want to talk about, please email us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com. And be sure to like, rate, and subscribe on whatever platform you listen to. We'll catch you again soon. Go Knicks. Trust the process.